0: The boys' basketball tournament, and they got a parade. You know, other sports teams, when they win things, they get parades. Or astronauts get parades. Military heroes get parades uh, thrown in their honor. That's how we honor people. It's one way in which we glorify folks. We throw them a parade. Uh, now, I've never had a parade thrown in my honor yet. My birthday's coming up, though, so there's an idea. Uh, no, I've never. Never had a parade. I've been, I've been in a parade. I've, I've sat on a homecoming float as a, a minor character, and uh, that really wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, but but I, you can imagine, I think, the appeal of, of having a parade, not just being in one, but having it for you. All those people gathered there together and uh, for the express purpose of honoring you, of glorifying you. You've done something amazing. We're all here now to celebrate you and what you've done. Uh, now maybe if that seems a little extreme for you, you, you'd shy away from that, say, well, I don't really want, I would never want to be in a parade in my honor. Uh, I would contend that all of us, though, at, at some level, want that that sort of affirmation. Uh, you might not want to be in a parade with everybody throwing confetti at you and, and cheering for you, but we all want honor, we all want glory, we all want recognition for what we've done. Uh, we, we don't want to be overlooked. We don't want to be uh, rejected or mistreated. We want people to honor us. We want glory. It's human nature. Okay? We, we want a parade. What we're going to look at today, we're taking a break from our, our study through 1 Peter for today and next week uh, to look at these events of, of Holy Week. We're going to look at uh, John chapter 12 today. If you're know, flipping your Bibles to John chapter 12, it's a passage where Jesus gets a parade. Uh, it's it's the, the text for Palm Sunday, it's, it's John chapter 12, beginning verse 12, and, and, and in this story, Jesus is honored, he's glorified by people, he gets what we all want, lots of crowds uh, chanting his name and praising him for what he's done. Uh, but as we look at this passage today, I think we'll find that Jesus gives us some truth that reorients us from a desire for selfish glory to a desire for true glory, a glory that comes from God. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, please turn to John chapter 12. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 12 and read through verse 33. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the story about Jesus and his parade. What I want to do this morning, as we go through this, and you can follow along the structure on your outline, I want to make a couple observations first. I want to draw this together into an application, and then give us a motivation for how we can live that out. Okay? So observation, application, motivation. Let's begin with the observations. First, as we look at this passage, one thing that we see is that true glory comes from God and not from man. i me give you a little context here for this parade. Uh, Jesus is clearly very popular at this point in his ministry. And if you look at at chapter 12, verse, uh, let's see here, verse 18, 17 and 18, you see that the reason why he was popular is because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, You see in verse 18, this is the reason why the crowd went to meet him. They would heard he'd done this sign. People were fascinated. Back in chapter 11, if you were to read through the story, you'd see that Jesus had done something incredible, something very parade-worthy. Lazarus had died. He'd been in the grave for a couple of days. Jesus shows up, tells them to to open up the tomb, and he speaks, and he says, Lazarus, come out, and this dead man comes back to life. And he comes out, and he walks around, and he's alive. And the crowds are amazed by this, and the chief priests are annoyed by this because Jesus has been a real thorn in their side. They think he's causing all this sort of trouble, and now he's gone and raised a guy from the dead. And people are flocking because they've heard that Jesus raised a man from the dead. And so they're gathering around and the Pharisees and the chief priests decide, we need to kill Jesus and now we've got to kill Lazarus too because he's quite the inconvenient truth. You've got this guy that Jesus rose from the dead. So we're going to kill them both so that people will stop being so attracted to this man and cause problems for us. So Jesus is incredibly popular at this moment. So he shows up going to Passover in Jerusalem and the crowds, they swarm, they come and they say, this is the man who's raised Lazarus from the dead. We should throw a parade for him. And they gather together, they cut down palm branches, they cheer for him, they say, Hosanna, praise Jesus for this wonderful thing he's done. He's incredibly popular. But the interesting thing, at least to me this week as I was studying this, is that Jesus doesn't really seem to care. You get all these people flocking to him for him raising Lazarus from the dead. They're they're singing his praises. They are literally singing his praises. And Jesus doesn't really seem to care. You see in verse 19, the Pharisees say the whole world is going after him. In the next verse, you see an example of that. It says there's these Greeks, these non-Jews, who are coming up, and now even they're getting in on it. The fame of Jesus has spread so much that it's not just a Jewish thing. These Greek folks are saying, we want to see Jesus. So they go to his disciples and ask him, can we see Jesus? And Jesus answers them in verse 23, somewhat circuitously. And he says to them, essentially, no, they can't see me. Because he says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So saying, these, these Greeks are coming, Lord. They want to come see you. Can they come see you? This, it seems like things are going really well. The Jews are, are praising you. You've got a parade. Now the Greeks are coming. They want to see you. Can they see you, Jesus? And he says, no. He says, no, because the hour has come now for me to be glorified. I, I can't be troubled uh, with seeing these people and having audiences with folks because I've got something coming up. My daybook is full. I've got an appointment to be glorified. Uh, now, if I were Philip and Andrew, I'd be sitting there thinking, what do you mean you're going to be glorified? I thought that just happened. Uh, we just had all the people who were cutting uh, down palm branches and they were singing for you. That that felt like glorification, Jesus. That That felt like what we're all shooting for. You got the parade that we wanted. And Jesus says, no, there's something coming up. Now is the hour when I'm going to be glorified. See, Jesus, his compass is is set towards God. He's not affected by this praise of man. He's not a a fickle person who who is is striving all the time to please the crowds as if he gets some sort of charge out of folks giving him a parade. No, he doesn't care about this glorification. The true glorification he's looking for is a recognition from the Father that he's doing what God wants him to do. Uh, If you were to flip ahead a few chapters in, in John 17... Uh, In John 17, 1, Jesus is still looking forward to this event of being glorified, and he prays to the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom, whom you have given him. See, Jesus, in this prayer, as he's looking forward, he's saying, my concern is not so much that the crowds will cheer for me, but that the Father would glorify me. He doesn't want people to glorify him so much as he wants the Father to glorify him because he knows what counts, what's true glory is not the affirmation of of the public but it's the affirmation of his Father. That's the first thing that I want you to see in this passage here that Jesus shows us that true glory comes from God and not from man. Uh, The second thing to see here, the, the more significant thing is that in this passage we see that true glory comes through the cross. True glory comes through the cross. Uh, If you ask the question, what is Jesus talking about? What is this glorification he's looking forward to? Specifically, what is it? Well, it's the cross. He's he's saying the hours come for me to be crucified, and he's calling that his glorification. We know that he's talking about the cross, if you just read the context here, in verse 24, this next verse here, he tells a, a mini parable. Uh, where he's talking about death for the sake of many. He says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay? On this side of the cross, we understand he's talking about his death, his death that will bear much fruit. Down in verse 27, he's praying to the Father, his soul is troubled. Why? Because he knows he's going to die. This is like his prayer in Gethsemane. He says, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, it's for this purpose I have come. The purpose why Jesus come, has come is this hour, this hour of going to the cross. Okay, Again, in verse 32 and 33, he says, When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus knows he's going to die. That's what's in view in this hour. And yet he says that's the hour of his glorification. Now you realize... For people who haven't been in church their whole life, this is a crazy thing to say. Okay, we're like, yeah, yeah, cross glory, right. No, no. Glory is when you, you walk down the road and people wave palm branches at you and they say, you know, praise to Jesus, you're wonderful, we love you. Going to the cross, going to the cross is shameful. Right? Going, going to the cross is, is, is him getting reviled and persecuted and beaten and eventually killed, stripped naked. This is not your, your your textbook definition of glory. He's saying something very radical here. He's saying, my glorification is when I get humiliated and crucified. That's the hour of my greatest glory. See, and that's what's coming up. See, so he's flipping expectations on their head. And he's saying, the parade, no, that was nothing. The true glory is going to come when I obey my Father all the way to the cross. Now, as I looked in this passage, there's, there's, there's tons of reasons why this is a glorious thing. Okay? And, and most of us could, could list a bunch of them if we really thought about it because we've, we've thought about the cross a lot. We've lived the Christian life for a while. We've, we've taken communion. We've reflected on all that God has done for us. But let me just highlight four things from this passage that, that Jesus and John, working with him, tell us are, are reasons why the cross is, in fact, glorious. Uh, the first one here is that the death, of the, cro- the death of Christ on the cross is glorious because it judges the world. You see that in verse 31. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. He's saying, This hour, this hour of my glorification, this is the judgment of the world. What does he mean when he says that? Uh, what what he's saying there is he's saying in in the cross, in in the death of Christ on the cross, God is showing for us how guilty we are. That's one thing that happens in the cross. It's the judgment of the world. Uh, Back in John chapter 3, verse 19, not John three sixteen, but a few verses later. John three nineteen, Jesus says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. But people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, the, the, the cross, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, is a judgment, first of all. It's a judgment against the world. You know, we like to think that we're pretty good people, that if we saw the right thing to do, we would always do it. But you know what? When God in the, came to earth in the flesh, We didn't welcome him with open arms. We didn't say, oh, righteousness, that's what I wanted all this time. No, we loved evil. When God showed up in the person of Jesus, we killed him. Because we love darkness rather than light. See, the first thing that the cross says is that we're guilty. We're guilty. We have crucified the Son of God. We love darkness rather than light. But the wonderful thing is that, that while the cross reveals who we really are, as we're guilty, darkness-loving God-haters. Um, the cross also reveals who God really is. Because Jesus, in the cross, he, he, he's, he says, yes, uh, you, ki- you killed me, you're guilty, but you know what? I'm going to take that guilt on myself. So he the world gets judged in the cross. We're, we're shown to be guilty. We're shown to be opponents of God, haters of God. And yet, in that moment, God also reveals that he loves us so much that he'll take that judgment on himself. So Jesus declares in the cross that we are guilty, and we are. And he says, I'll take that guilt on myself. I'll die that death that you deserve, that you might be set free. That's one of the reasons why the cross is glorious, because in it God judges the world, judges our sins, and sets us free. Uh, Secondly, the death of Christ in the cross is glorious because it defeats Satan. You just continue on that verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out the rule of this world he's talking about satan he says this this is the moment this is the moment when satan is decisively defeated over in hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 we read since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself that is jesus likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It says in his death he destroyed the one who had power of death so that that he would deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, the devil's power, his hold over us, is this fear of death, this fear of condemnation, this fear of, uh, of, of dying and being punished. And yet, what Jesus did in his death on the cross is that he conquered death. He he went through death. He submitted himself to death and death could not hold him. He triumphed over death and in that victory, he won victory for all those who had put their faith in him. So the sting of death is gone. Satan has been defanged. He's been defeated. And that's part of the glory of the cross is that in that moment when it looks like Jesus is being defeated, when it looks like he is losing, he's winning. He's destroying the power of death that Satan had over all of us. Third, the death of Christ on the cross is glorious because it saves many. Look back in chapter 12, verse 24. See This little parable Jesus gives here It makes sense to us. It says, if you've got a, a grain of wheat and you keep it by itself, it does nothing. But if you put it in the ground, it multiplies. The, the death of that seed to produce a new plant creates a plant that doesn't bear just one seed, but it bears many seeds. Okay, it's basic gardening. When you put in one seed, you get a lot more fruit from that one seed. And, and John is saying, "This is what the death of Jesus is like. It's one for many. He's, his death is a substitution. He's paying the penalty for us, but not just one for one. Uh, this death of Jesus is one for billions. Okay His death on the cross is 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 huge. He's paying the penalty for everyone who would ever put their faith in him. And over in, in verse 32, Uh, John points out that Jesus is not just limiting this to one particular people group, but Jesus says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now certainly this is not saying that Jesus, in his death, will save every single person who's ever lived, uh, because we know that elsewhere the Bible doesn't teach that, so that all must mean something else, and I think what he's saying there, he's saying, I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself. The context here is that the Greeks were coming, trying to seek Jesus, and he's saying, no, not right now. But after I'm glorified, after I die on the cross, I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself. I'm going to save Jews. I'm going to save Greeks. We read in Revelation 5 that when we're praising God in heaven for all eternity, we'll be praising him for the fact that by his blood, Jesus purchased people from every tribe and every language and every nation, every people group that's ever lived. See, the death of Jesus is huge. It's not just one thing that he did for one person or for one particular people group at one point in time, but his death, is effective for all those who put their faith in him for all time. We could spend hours on all these. Okay, number four. Uh, it glorifies the Father. The death of Christ on the cross is glorious because it glorifies the Father. Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. Again. See, Jesus is doing this because he wants the Father to be glorified. And how does this glorify the Father? Well, look, this is the Father's plan. The Father says to Jesus, uh, I want you to die on the cross to save the world from their sins. And Jesus says, because you want me to do this, I will do it. He's saying to the Father, you are more important to me than my very life. You're important, more important to me than all this suffering that I'm going to go through. He's saying, Father, you are worth more than anything else, and so I will go through anything because I value you so highly. See, the death of Jesus on the cross, we see the worth of the Father because Jesus is willing to go through anything, in you know, order to obey him. But, but furthermore, we also see the glory of the Father because it's his plan too. He's going through this with Jesus. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the Father is giving up Jesus. He's going through pain in this as well. He's willing to go through all of this for our sakes. And so when we look at the cross, not only do we honor Christ for all that he sacrificed for us, but we glorify the Father because he had to endure so much as well to purchase our salvation. See, we could go on and on and and explore the various aspects of the cross, but it's just enough to look at these four and see... That in this moment, Jesus is flipping everything on its head. He's saying, it's not the parade that is glorious. That's what it feels like to you. The disciples thought, oh, as you enter into the city, uh, the next step is for more people to come to you. And then you'll challenge the Romans and we'll overthrow them and the world will recognize you as the king and there'll be glory after glory after glory. And Jesus is saying, no, true glory, if you really understand what's going to happen here, true glory is the way of the cross. It looks like humiliation, but in the end, oh, it, it brings judgment on the world, it defeats Satan, it saves those who put their faith in Jesus and brings great glory to the Father. All right, those are the observations. True glory comes from God, not man, and true glory comes from the cross. Now, how do we apply that? What's that mean for us? You could check out right here and be like, wow, that was interesting. Or maybe that was boring. I don't know what you're thinking right now. Uh, but what does it mean? How do we, what, what, why does it matter that that's what's in the Bible? Well, here's our application. Okay, if we take these two truths, try I think, how does it come into play into our lives? Here's what I think it says for us. We must seek glory from God by believing the gospel and imitating Jesus in sacrificial service. I think if you, if you get these two truths, if you recognize that true glory comes from God, not from man, and that true glory comes through the cross, then it means that we must seek glory from God by believing the gospel and imitating Jesus in sacrificial service. See, we need to seek glory from God. It means we need to st- st- stop wanting the parade. right? Stop getting so worked up when people don't pat us on the back. Stop doing things for the approval of other people. True glory comes from God. And how do we get that glory? First of all, by believing in the gospel. You know, if the death of, of Christ on the cross says anything, it says that that God is not pleased with you until you put your faith in Jesus. Okay? There's no like, oh, yeah, you're a good person and apart from Christ. I, I know I like you. I, I, I like you, um, even if you don't believe in Jesus. No, no. What the cross says is that everyone who does not put their faith in Jesus is an enemy of God. It judges the world. It says, apart from Christ, you are a, you are a slave to Satan You are an enemy of God. Uh, You have no hope in this world. There's no way that you could possibly please him. So if you want to seek glory from God, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to put your faith in Jesus and believe the gospel. You accept that sacrifice that he's made on your behalf so that now God looks at you and sees Jesus and says, I am as pleased with you as I am with my son. And then once you believe the gospel, your whole life changes and you begin to follow God imitating Jesus in sacrificial service. That's what Jesus picks up in verse 25 and 26. After he references his death, he now points to us, his followers, and says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am there, may my servant be also. See, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow him, then you give him your whole life. And you follow him, not where you want to go, that's not following. You follow him where he leads. And where Jesus leads is to Calvary, to the cross, the way of sacrificial service for the good of others. You know, in some countries, that means that, that people, our brothers and sisters in faith, are actually dying for following Jesus. I mean, you get that, right? I mean, in Iran, um, in other hostile regimes, there are people who, for this, it literally means that they love Jesus enough that they hate their life by comparison. That, that they will follow Jesus, they will not renounce him, they will attest their belief in him, even if someone says, I'm going to kill you unless you recant. Okay. That's probably not going to happen in our country in the next couple generations. But that's a meaning of this passage. Uh, for us as well, since we don't have that threat immediately, it's a little harder for us to see the connection, but it's there. It's that in every day, we're confronted with these challenges. Am I going to die to myself? Am I going to serve others? Or am I going to seek the parade? Am I going to try to glorify myself? You know, it means, how am I using my time? How am I using my money? Am I using it sacrificially for the good of others or to please myself? Jesus is quite honest here that following him can be hard. Hard. Just notice those words that he uses here. In verse 24, he talks about dying. Verse 25, he says you have to hate your life. Verse 26, he says you've got to follow him, and he's going to Calvary. Um, and he says again that you've got to serve him, that is, you're a servant. Servants don't get a lot of parades. When you look at the Christian life honestly, you have to ask yourself, well, who wants that? Who wants to be like Jesus. Who wants to follow him on that road to Calvary and get humiliated, suffer, sacrifice? Wouldn't we all rather have a parade? Well, thankfully, he gives us some motivations. This is where we end today. The Christian life is hard. There is difficulty involved. We do have to sacrifice, but oh, it's worth it. Okay? It's worth it. And here in this passage, Jesus gives us three motivations for why it's worth it. First, we get eternal life. Okay? We, we get eternal life. If we seek glory from God by believing the gospel and imitating Jesus in sacrificial service, the end result is eternal life. You see that in verse 25? Verse 25 he says, Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now you've got to be careful here. I have to be careful, because I don't want you to mishear me. He's not saying that you earn eternal life by hating your life enough. Okay? He's not slipping in some works righteousness through the back door here. He's saying salvation is a free gift. All that stuff we said about the cross, it's true. Jesus died for you. You didn't deserve it. He offers this salvation freely if you just accept it. But what he's saying here is, he's saying this is how you accept it. He's saying it's a completely free gift, but this is how you accept it. You accept it by, by pledging yourself to him. By saying, I love you more than anything, and, and by comparison, I hate the rest of the world. I hate my own life. I'll, I'll follow you no matter what the cost. It's like when you get married and your spouse, you know, they give you their love freely, I hope, uh, and yet you stand there to your spouse and you said, uh, I will love you forsaking all others. Okay? You're saying to your spouse, by comparison, I hate everything else, every rival to you, I, I hate. I'm pledging myself to you. I'm going to follow you. You make a commitment. You know, this is Jesus coming out against that 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 false belief that says, you know, you could just uh, you just get some fire insurance. Uh, you just you know pray a prayer sometime and and say the right words and then you go on and live your merry life and you'll be covered. You'll get eternal life. No. That's like getting married and then on your honeymoon you just start dating other people. Did your marriage mean anything? Did you really make a commitment there? are you really in a covenant with this other person? Then your life is different. So Jesus says here, if you follow me, if you, if you really do, if you're all in, I've offered you eternal life and you say, yeah, I want that. I pledge my life to you. I want to follow you. I accept that free grace. Then you get eternal life. So no matter what the cost, you know, even if we are standing there with our brothers and sisters in Iran and, and we're getting that statement saying, do you believe in Jesus? If you don't recant, I'm going to kill you. We say, go ahead. Because I hate everything compared to Jesus. I would sooner die than deny him. The other motivation is that we will be with Jesus. In verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. That where I am, there my servant will be also. See, this is what makes eternal life great, uh, is that we get to spend it with Jesus. Uh, eternal life with the wrong, <laughs> with the wrong people it could be uh, a pain. <laughs> but, but, but we get to spend eternal life with Jesus. In fact, in, in John 17, where I looked earlier, uh, Jesus defines eternal life as knowing him. Uh, in John 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The thing that makes eternal life wonderful is we get to be with Jesus, the one who's given himself for us, who loves us more than anyone, who knows us more deeply than anyone and loves us anyway. We get to be with him for all eternity. As we give our lives to Him and follow Him on the way of the cross, we get to share in the fellowship of His suffering. We get to know Him more deeply, and when we die, we get to be with Him forever. Third motivation for going this way is that we, the Father will honor us. The Father will honor us if we believe the gospel and imitate Jesus in sacrificial service. The Father will honor us. This brings us back to where we started. Okay, we want glory. We want the parade. We want the accolades. We want people to tell us we've done a good job. And yet often when you go down this road of sacrificial service, it means that you don't get those pats on the back. So what do we do with that? Well, Jesus says, don't worry. If no one recognizes you in this life, the Father will honor you, and that's what matters. You know, I know some of you are stay-at-home parents, and that can be hard. Because the other spouse gets to go out into the world and, and they get, uh, you know, they, they do the job. At the very least, they get a paycheck that provides some sort of affirmation for what they're doing. Uh, they get promotions at work. They get people who tell them they're doing a good job. And you're home with the children, and that can feel like a thankless task. Okay. What, how do you do that? How do you keep going? How do you keep sacrificing and serving God by loving your children, even though you don't have somebody always giving you the pat on the back saying, good job, way to go? You hold on to this truth. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's what you want anyway, right? You want the glory from God, not from man. Now, some of you have, have had the experience of being sacrificially generous for someone who is ungrateful. It's not its not really that hard to be generous to someone who's grateful, is it? Because you feel like you're getting something out of it. But, but some of you had that experience of being sacrificially generous to people who at the end of the t- line, you feel like you really got taken advantage of. Uh, how do you step back up to the plate the next time when someone has a need and, 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 and offer yourself again to be generous? How do you open yourself up again to the possibility of being taken advantage of, or at the very least, helping them out and not getting any thanks in return? Well, you cling to the promise of this verse that if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It doesn't matter fundamentally. If the people that you are helping come back and thank you or not, sure it feels good. But what matters is that you're serving God and He knows what's going on and He will honor you for your service. There's all sorts of ways in this church and in every church uh, where you have opportunities to serve and you don't get thanked enough, you don't get thanked the way that you should serving in the nursery, changing the light bulbs, uh, working in the kitchen, doing all the various things, mowing the lawn, all this stuff that needs to get done. We don't have a committee for people to come around and pat you on the back. Maybe we should. And and tell you, good job for your service. But you know what? God will honor you. I was just visiting another church last week uh, with a friend. And through coincidence, I I saw a couple people there who uh, i actually gone to high school with. And they knew that I was pastoring a church. They'd grown up around here, and they asked me, uh, "Now, where's that church again?" I thought, "You grew up here. You 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 know this area. You don't you don't know my church. This church was a lot bigger than our church." And I thought, "Oh, that's that's hard." Then I read this passage. I thought, "It doesn't matter." It doesn't doesn't matter if people, it doesn't matter if we're not the biggest church in the block, if nobody knows who we are, if if people don't write us up or call us for quotes when it comes to issues in the newspaper. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if people know what you've done. What matters is that you are serving the Lord and the Father will honor you. And and, and just a huge encouragement here to wrap it up. Notice that there's not any qualifiers on this. He doesn't say, if anybody serves me exceptionally well, if anybody uh, does heroic deeds uh, in my name, just, if anybody serves me, it's very, the bar is very low here. So just serve me. Just serve me and I will honor you. What God wants from us more than anything is our lives, our faithfulness. He doesn't need us to be super talented, to be flashy, to be impressive. He's got that taken care of. But if we'll offer our lives to him in faithful service, he will use that and he will honor us i want to end today by reading a quote from a book, and I'll try hard not to cry, okay? That's my, that's my part. You can cry. There's a, a guy named Don Carson, also known as D.A. Carson. Uh, he's a biblical scholar. He's written over 60 books. They're all good. I haven't read them all, but he's, 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 just, he's one of those guys where it's just like, how does this even happen? Incredible person. Uh, he teaches at Trinity Seminary. In our, our denomination seminary in Chicago, and he's the sort of guy that, that you think, okay, that's that's the that's the guy I want to be like him. Like I want I want that recognition, I want that honor. He's the sort of guy that you know, if if uh, if theology nerds threw parades, we would throw a parade for him. Okay. Um, one of these books that he's written though is a book about his father. His father was not a remarkable man. He was a pastor who labored for most of his life in Quebec, uh, which was a, a place of, of great uh, unfruitfulness at the time that he was ministering. A lot of opposition, very difficult to be a pastor, uh, an evangelical pastor in that time. He had a ministry that was, that was pretty unfruitful, quite unremarkable, and this book that Carson wrote about his father was called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. Um, his dad, Tom, was a guy that would never be celebrated, and yet he was honored by God. So let me read to you the conclusion of this book that Don Carson writes about his dad. He says, Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there's no text that says, "By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you are good administrators." His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. Only rarely did he break through his pattern of reserve and speak deeply and intimately with his children, but he modeled Christian virtues to them. He was not very good at putting people down, except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television. No mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters, not because he was a good man or a great man, he was after all a most ordinary pastor, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him who he longed to hear, saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's, that's what I want us to believe. I want us to believe that there is a glory that comes from God that is worth far more than any glory that we can get on this earth. It's a glory that comes not because we're wonderful people, but because we're forgiven people who believe the gospel, are accepted by God, by the work that Jesus has done. And then we respond to that by giving him our lives and daily sacrificial service for others. Not looking for applause, but merely wanting to respond to the grace that's been given to us. One day we will hear from our Lord, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we long to be faithful. We can't even do that apart from your grace. Would you empower us this week uh, to live for your glory, both to glorify you to others and to live merely for your smile of satisfaction on us. Free us, God, from the tyranny of seeking approval and applause and recognition from others. Satisfy us with these words that come from you, that if we serve you, you will honor us. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. Would you give us fruit as we follow you? In Jesus' name, amen.